Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Grace. Let me begin this morning by reading from Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Romans 8, 35 to 39, Paul asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's master. He's king. He's the savior of the world. He's the ruler of all. And he, the majestic one, the powerful one, the great one, Paul says, is undefeated in his love. His lordship comes through in his love. Nothing can separate us from his love. All that power and authority wielded to love us. That's good news in a world filled with trials, injustices, grief, and loss. All these things that make us feel alone and isolated. Think about what befalls us humans. Hunger can kill you and kills far too many in our food-filled world today. Hunger can kill you, but it can't separate you from the love of Christ. Not if you've entrusted your soul to him. Coronavirus can kill you. It's striking closer to home for many of us as the days drag on. Over 160,000 people have died in the United States, leaving children and parents and friends to grieve their loss. Coronavirus can kill you, 
but it can't separate you from the love of Christ, not if you've put your hope in Him. Do you know what else can kill you? Wind. Pretty unlikely for us city folks to be killed by wind. Far more likely for the disciples. Twice in Matthew's Gospel, back in chapter 8 and today in chapter 14, which we're studying, the disciples' lives are threatened by wind, both times on the Sea of Galilee. Listen to the first account from Matthew 8, verses 23 to 27. And when he got into the boat, that's Jesus, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Uh, lots of similarities between uh, this earlier sea story and the one we have today in Matthew 14, but there are some differences too. And the biggest difference is where Jesus is when the storm hits. Right? In Matthew 8, he's in the boat with them. He's asleep, but at least he's in the boat. So they can wake him up and, and tell him to help. But in Matthew 14, our passage today, he's not there. He sent them on ahead of him without him. It's the first time in Matthew's gospel that he's not accompanying his disciples. He's not with them. At the beginning of this chapter, chapter 14, Jesus learned that John the Baptist, his relative, John, had been killed by Herod. Verse 13 says, When Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. He needed some alone time. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him. They see him out on the water. They're on land. They're walking, paralleling his movements, waiting for him to come in. And when he comes into shore, they, they rush him, a huge crowd. That leads to a full day of ministry, healing the sick, feeding the hungry. Jesus still didn't get his time alone. So after he'd fed everyone, he sends his disciples ahead across the sea. He dismisses the crowds to go back to their homes, and he goes up on the mountain by himself to pray. Verse 23 says, when evening came, he was there alone. Finally, Jesus gets some solitude. Good for Jesus, right? Yes, but if Jesus is alone on land and the disciples are out to sea, then that means what? He's not with them. Can you picture the disciples uh, rowing away from land, looking back to see Jesus there on the shore, dismissing the crowds? Maybe they even get to see him walking up to the mountain to be alone to pray. They're probably wondering what is going on. What are we going to do without Jesus? After all, they'd left everything to follow him. They'd heard his teachings. They'd seen his power. They'd come to depend on him. Speaking of depending on him, the last time they were on that sea in which they find themselves, he came in really handy. We read about that in Matthew 8. Going on ahead without Jesus then would have seemed like a terrible idea to them, I'm sure. I wonder how much effort we could read into verse 22 where it says, 
that he, that's Jesus, made them get into the boat and go before him to the other side. The King James translates this, he constrained them. J.B. Phillips' translation, he insisted they go without him. So Jesus, go without me, I'll catch up. The disciples, uh, but, and he says, no, I want you to go. Well, that's the setting. A full day of ministry, uh, hearing sad news about the passing of a loved one, having no time to grieve, needs galore, staring you in the face, finally some downtime until the next storm that is, and that next storm happened later that night. Jesus is Lord over sickness. We saw that last week with uh, the centurion's servant. Here today we see that Jesus is Lord over nature, particularly in our passage over the wind. Uh, Wind is mentioned three times in verses 24 to 33, so we'll use those occurrences to help carry us along throughout uh, this story. The first thing we see in verses 24 to 27 is that the wind threatens disciples of Jesus. The boat was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. It's the fourth watch of the night, verse 25 says, so between 3 and 6 a.m., It's dark, they've been battling the sea for hours, they're far from land, and they see something out there, someone. Now, if you're out to sea a couple miles from land in first century Israel, and you saw what looked like a figure, a a person coming near your boat, what do you think you would be experiencing? Fear, right? Verse 26 says, and they were terrified, and they said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. In Matthew 8, the disciples are afraid of dying. Here, they're afraid when they see Jesus walking on the water, thinking he's a ghost. In Greek literature, the word for ghost that Matthew uses would be probably what we have in mind when we say the word ghost, a spirit, an apparition, something like that. But the Hebrew equivalent would be something more like a deception. So an evil spirit attempting not just to scare them, but to deceive them. It would have been much more diabolical than what we usually think of when we hear the word ghost. So their question, what is this great evil coming against us on the sea? And we really feel for them, don't we? As if the waves and the wind isn't already frightening enough. They're shaking in their galoshes, right? They're terrified. Jesus knows how frightened they are. He knows this. He he gives them immediate assurance of who he is. Verse 27, he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. There's three parts to what Jesus says there. The first, take heart, right? Be of good cheer, take courage. The third, Do not be afraid. And we might ask, how can he say this to them given their circumstances? Because of what he says in the middle, in the second part. It is I. Scholars are pretty quick to point out that in Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, Jesus literally says, I am. It's the Greek word, zegoemi. It's clear in John's gospel, for instance, that when Jesus says, I am, 
the, the same Greek words, agoe me, I am the good shepherd, for instance, that he's making an amazing claim about himself. See, the Jews knew uh, one I am and only one, Yahweh, the Lord God. In Exodus 3.13, during the Lord's uh, heated conversation with Moses at the burning bush, he tells Moses, my people are afflicted, they've been crying out for help, I'm going to help them and you're going to help me help them. And Moses, whoa, hold up, that sounds like too much for me. And the Lord says, oh, I'll be with you, you can do it, I'll be with you. And Moses says, okay, but if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they, and they say, who are we talking about? What's his name? What do I say to them? Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's my name. I am. Fast forward 1,500 years when Jesus, throughout the course of his teaching ministry, says in reference to himself several times in the Gospel of John, I am. See, the Jews knew that name, I am. They knew who it belonged to. So when Jesus uses it in reference to himself, that makes a big impression. It gets a big response. Let's run through real quickly all these I am sayings of Jesus in John's Gospel. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, John chapter 6. I am the light of the world, John chapter 8. I am the door of the sheep, and I am the good shepherd, both in chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life, that's chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, that's chapter 14. I am the true vine, chapter 15. Each one of these in itself is an incredible affirmation of Jesus' nature, no wonder many wanted to kill him as a heretic. If you say, for instance, I am the resurrection and the life, you darn better well be, right? Or else. He says seven times, I am, followed by an object which highlights his uniqueness and his claim to deity. If what, you, uh, if what he says in John eight fifty eight is added before Abraham was, I am, you have another one that makes eight. And as long as we're counting, if you take Jesus's, it is I, egoe me, I am, here on the Sea of Galilee in Matthew 14, we have nine, nine I am's from Jesus' own mouth that he is no mere mortal. But as the Nicene Creed says, he is very God of very God. How can the disciples take heart? How can they not be afraid of him, of the wind and the waves, of anything, anyone that would come and threaten them? Because of who he is. Because he is I am. And importantly, I am is with them. Not a ghost, not an evil, evil spirit, uh, not just an incredible spirit-empowered man, but the Lord Jesus Christ. I am was with them, and we need I am to be with us too. Amen? At home? Amen? Here in the sanctuary? Amen. We need I am because this world, like the sea in biblical thought, 
is chaotic and threatening, full of anxiety and dark power that threatens the goodness of life. And here in our story, the sea is a barrier that separates Jesus from his disciples. No wonder they didn't recognize him walking on the water. It's dark. They're tired. The waves are crashing. And oh yes, let's not forget, they left him on the shore hours ago, miles away. How then is he here? How did he walk on water? The the modern mind jumps to how Jesus could defy gravity, the, the physics of it all. How did that happen? But the biblical mind would see the one who overcomes the power of chaos, the one who conquers the sea. They know who has that power. So what we have here in Matthew 14 is Jesus doing what only God can do and saying what only God can say. How much the disciples understood at this point in the story, it's hard to say. Even if Matthew's making a strong case for the deity of Jesus when he writes these words, the disciples, as we see them throughout the Gospels, are often pretty dull. They're slow to learn. They waver between faith and doubt. The wind threatens disciples of Jesus, always has, always will, but Jesus presses right through to show up and to speak to his people. Take heart, do not be afraid, I am with you. Well, Peter, uh, we see in verse 28, is first to speak. I don't know if there's an instance in the Gospels where he's not first to speak, and he speaks up. He proposes a test. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus acquiesces and says, come. So Peter goes. He actually gets out of the boat in the middle of the sea in a storm, and he walks on water to Jesus. Until, that is, he got distracted by the wind. He's walking to Jesus on the water. Let's just think about that for a moment. Maybe he's thinking, oh man, my friends back home will never believe this. I wish I had a camera phone. But verse 30, when he saw the wind, he's afraid, and then he begins to sink. The wind distracts disciples from keeping their eyes on Jesus. That's what we see in verses 28 to 31. It's true for Peter, it's true for you, it's true for me. And there's so much to distract us, isn't there? Whatever's blowing about in your life, whatever's threatening you, whatever's tempting you, whatever's angering you, whatever's occupying too much of your time, you have the option of fixing all your attention on that or of turning your eyes to Jesus. When Peter's fixed on Jesus, he walks on water. When he looks away at the wind, he began to sink. Here we see faith and doubt all in the same scene. And isn't that just like our lives? One moment we're looking to Jesus, believing in his power, walking by faith, as it were, walking on water, experiencing what's possible, the incredible things that are possible because of our union with Jesus, and in the very next moment, it seems, we get distracted and we sink. 
thank Jesus that Peter's sinking and our sinking isn't the end of the story. Aren't you glad for that? After noticing that he's going down, Peter cries, Lord, save me. Psalm 69 comes to mind where David prays, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. This sense of being overwhelmed and needing rescue has always been a reality for God's people. Peter cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus responds. And the text says he does so immediately. When the disciples were terrified, thinking they'd seen a ghost, when they're already uh, frightened by the storm and fighting against that all night, Jesus immediately, verse 27 says, speaks to them a word of assurance. And when Peter's sinking down, Jesus immediately, verse 31 says, reaches out his hand to take hold of him. And he says to Peter, this sinking rock, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt, Peter? There's a Bible commentator named M. Eugene Boring, and I sure hope he's not. He writes, the gentle rebuke identifies Peter as the typical disciple in Matthew. Little faith is the dialectical mixture of courage and anxiety, of hearing the word of the Lord and looking at the terror of the storm, of trust and doubt, which is always an ingredient, doubt is, always an ingredient to the Christian existence even after the resurrection. So friends, look to Jesus, yes, look to Jesus. Walk by faith, keep your eyes fixed on him. And when you look away and begin to sink, cry out to Jesus and he will come and rescue you. So look, sink, cry, repeat. That is the experience of the Christian until the Lord Jesus returns. Great faith is definitely to be preferred uh, to little faith. But lest you be crushed, remember, Little faith is still what? Faith. Little faith says with the father of the demon-possessed boy in, in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, but can you help my unbelief? Little faith, if genuine, is faith in Jesus who is Lord. To doubt here with Peter it is not to disbelieve. It's to waver. It's to look to Jesus, then to look to the wind, then look back to Jesus, then back to the wind. The wind distracts us from Jesus, no doubt about it, but because Jesus is faithful, he comes to his own in the midst of the storm and he saves. When they didn't think there was any way Jesus could be with them out there in that storm, he was. And when you don't think there's any way Jesus is with you in yours, he is. The miracle just one scene earlier before our story in Matthew 14 was a miracle of bread, the feeding of the 5,000. But here in the middle of the sea, it's a miracle of presence. Jesus' presence. 
The wind threatens disciples of Jesus. The wind distracts disciples from Jesus. But ultimately, the wind, like everything and everyone else in all of creation, will bow to Jesus. It must. He is Lord. In verses 32 and 33, we see that the wind stops and worship starts when Jesus gets in the boat. That's how our story ends. Verse 32, and when they, that's Jesus and Peter, got into the boat, the wind ceased. Not like Matthew 8 where he speaks to it. We don't have any indication. It just stops. Stops blowing. Verse 33, and all those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. I find it interesting that the disciples are called the disciples in verse 22 and then again in verse 26. But at the end of the story, when the wind stops and the worship starts, they're called just those in the boat. It's as if Matthew's saying, I'm not just talking about the 12 disciples in this one story, but every worshiper of Jesus who find themselves in perilous circumstances. Every Christian who's part of the storm-tossed church. Just like Jesus came to them, those in the boat on the sea, he will come to us, he will come to you in your time of need. There's a lot to admire about Peter's bold faith in this passage and throughout the Gospels. Even when he says the wrong thing or over-promises on his commitment, there's something incredible about Peter's willingness to step out, right, again and again, to step out, in this case, the boat of the boat, literally, in our passage today. That took a lot of faith. But I believe it would be a mistake to think that the message here, the lesson we learn from this, is that if he had enough faith, he could have kept walking on the water. And if you have enough faith, friends, you can too. You can overcome all your problems in spectacular ways. You can have your best life now. Better, I think, is to understand that if he had enough faith, he would have believed the word of Jesus that came to him while he was still in the boat. Isn't that what caused Jesus to marvel in Matthew 8? That the centurion didn't have to have Jesus come to his house or prove anything? That Jesus' word was enough? To quote Mr. Boring one more time, faith is not being able to walk on water. Only God can do that. Faith is daring to believe in the face of all the evidence that God is with us in the boat, made real in the community of faith as it makes its way through the storm battered by the waves. The wind, like hunger, like coronavirus, the wind could have killed the disciples on the sea that day. It didn't. But even if it did, not a hair on their heads would have been harmed. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So good. Let's pray together. Lord, hear your church when we pray. We believe. Help our unbelief. May that prayer of faith and doubt, that very honest prayer, may that often be on our lips and may it give way little by little to more faith and less doubt until you return, Lord Jesus, to complete what you've begun in us. And if there are those who are watching or listening to this message who have never taken you, Jesus, into their boat, never put their faith in you, never experienced your power to calm the storm, never bowed down and called you Lord, would you have mercy on them and grant them a new heart that they might call upon your name and be saved, have all their sins forgiven and be granted new life. Thank you, our risen Lord Jesus, for being with us today and for speaking to us the words of eternal life. And it's in your name that we do pray. Amen. Amen.